In a world where it seems like there's so much going wrong, I want you to see the people who are spending their lives doing and seeing the good. Welcome to the Doing Good Podcast, where we discuss the stories of people who are changing the world in their own way. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I am thrilled to have Marsha French on the podcast today. Marsha has a PhD and is an LCSW and has run 20 years a successful private practice in Fishers, Indiana. She is also interning with IU Hospital's transplant team. She has two international positions, one in Africa and Philippines, as the area mental health advisor, each lasting 18 months. She has worked as the coordinator for the Governor's Initiative for Drug Prevention in Indiana an executive director at a mental health facility, social service director at a county hospital, addictions recovery coordinator for Indiana, coordinator of strengthening marriage and family programming for Indiana and Kentucky, and an individual family and group therapist. In addition, Marsha received special federal recognition for her ability to organize, network, and build upon the state's existing infrastructure. Marsha has worked in Illinois as a crisis team director advocate, caseworker, and family therapist, and directed crisis teams in Chicago as well as the Northern Lakeshore communities and worked with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies as a trainer and consultant of mental illness. Marsha has contracted within the United States to review mental health and addiction facilities. She's been awarded the highest recognition for her service to the field of social work and in community volunteerism. Marsha and her husband, Jeff, have been married for almost 40 years and have four living children. They have enjoyed hosting foster and foreign exchange children throughout their lives. Oh my goodness, Marsha, you sound simply amazing. Welcome to Doing Good. And it's easy to see from your bio, you have done so much good. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm actually, wow, that was written a while ago and I haven't looked at that for a long time. Clarify anything so, that I said. That yes, we actually, a year ago today, lost our eldest son to leukemia. So we have four, unless I get to count, you know, my daughter-in-law <laughs> or my son-in-law, then we can kick the number up to our children. But our eldest son passed away a year ago today. And so we have three living children right now. <laughs> and that's been uh that it we, that I wasn't ready to hear that that was a little surprise so that's just a little bit of a a shift in in that and it's great to be on with you today. Well, Marsha, I would love to talk with you since on the anniversary of your sweet on the angel anniversary of your sweet. Yes. So so how old was he when he passed away? Josh turned forty last. January. And so he had just turned 40 about a year and a half earlier. And you will need to talk to everybody else in the world. I am severely dyslexic, so my numbers are always off. But I do know we had his 40th birthday and he had acute myeloid leukemia that he was diagnosed with a year to a year and a half prior to his passing. And so he was an actor and a director. And just we actually went to the high school today. We moved to Indiana in 1998, I want to say. My brother and his, he was going through some challenges with his wife who passed away of breast cancer and his daughter who passed away of breast cancer. And so we came here 
oh at that God. point. And sweet little Josh, he was a junior, I want to say, in high school, maybe a sophomore. I could have been getting that wrong, too. But when we approached all the kids and said we were moving, he was the one that said, hey, this is family. Let's go. And he was on the football team and he had was won, r- winning all these awards for theater and he just didn't even look backwards. He's like, let's go. And so we went over to the high school this morning and where he had all these awards and and took a picture in front of that. And Josh had a horrible addiction with the little Debbie snack cakes. <laughs> and so we've invited all of our friends and everybody to just go get a little Debbie snack cake today oh. and host it to him. He loved playing games, and this would be right up his alley of fun things to do. So I have had so many wonderful people today sending me, hey, here's our picture with our toasting Josh with the little Debbies. And so it's been really fun. So Jeff and I, my husband, and I went over to the high school, and and tomorrow we just decided today that we're going to go back to Chicago tomorrow to his other high school and places where we lived and toast him from each of those. So it's it's literally about 10 minutes ago we made the final decision that we're going to hop in the car tomorrow and do that little road trip. Oh my goodness, Marsha. Well, what a sweet and tender tribute to your son. My My husband just turned 40 a few weeks ago. And so that seems very, very young to be made an angel. And I'm sure you're feeling all of the tender feelings today. So thank you for talking with us. And I'm sure your work as as a social worker and mental health professional has possibly helped you in your grieving process of losing your son. Can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about how that has helped you stay positive? I mean, you were just smiling and happy. And I mean, I'm sure there's time for tears too, but what tools have you used to be able to help you, I mean, losing your son, but also with lots of other difficult things you've seen in your life in the mental health field? We, I have had so many opportunities in the field of social work, just been incredibly privileged and blessed to work in different areas and had a few years where I got to work with hospice and be with people during those last hours and be with their families and just recognizing the absolute joy and sanctity of life and how how we can celebrate it. We had a, I have a very dear friend who her husband passed away Saturday last week, a week ago today. And she had, and I knew her and her daughter really well, but I'd never had the opportunity to meet her husband. And in our faith, we often go to the Temple of Mary for time and eternity. And when she met her husband, he was, he had joined the church and, and I am, I'm hoping I get this information right. I think he was like 21 or 20 and had chosen to go and serve a mission at 26. Wow. 27 or five, and then came home and met my dear friend. And she was a widow. She had been married, had a little baby girl, and her hus- lost her husband that I think the year before they met, if I'm correct. And he walked in and opted to take on this sweet little baby. 
And this wonderful woman, knowing full well that she wanted to honor her first husband's memory and keep that ceiling in place. And I can't tell you, it's been such an honor to look at lives like that, that for me, it, it blew me away as I sat and listened to her speak at her, her husband's funeral to think what kind of kindness that takes to oh. recognize they went on to have a number of children. And so there's a lot of questions on how does that ceiling work and what, you know, how are these other children linked to them? Right. But to be able to give himself, and in, if I am remembering correctly, he said he just felt inspired that his life's work was going to be to care for her and her and and the children. And you meet people like this and you get to see people like this. When I worked in hospice, just amazing people who loved their their family members so much, but they had a lot of questions about death and they didn't have any answers. Yeah. And they didn't necessarily believe there was anything after. And they would get nervous at the end. And I remember one woman said, "I they were elderly, over 70, and we were in the hospital. And I remember her saying, I want to hold his hand, but I feel horrible because I'm scared. I just, I'm just scared of the whole process. And it was this beautiful opportunity to sit. And I had a wonderful director who we did a lot of massage because as you well know, massage relaxes you. And it can take yes. pain levels down. And so yes. I would talk and we would we would do this massage with them. So I was constantly in touching the, the the people who were transitioning from this world to the next. Yes. And so I held his hand and I with my other hand held hers. Oh. And she spoke all these beautiful words, but she said, I can I can close my eyes and feel his warmth. And you start to realize millions of ways to transition. We all have maybe different beliefs, but the connectedness we all can feel and the excitement of what they're doing and what they're going to be doing as they prepare to welcome in their family that has a few more years to work on this earth, right? Right. And so... It was a wonderful transition for me to kind of embrace what death meant to me. And we moved here in 98. And we, I think it was just a few years later when my husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was given six months. And last month we celebrated his 20 year anniversary. He is just this what? miracle guy who walks around and, no. and he, you know, watching people that I'm surrounded by that are so focused on being in the middle of living that good life and what can I do and what can I take with me and, and what can I experience before I go home, capital H, home. Yes. And when you get to be immersed by people who are just truly joyful, and even in the worst of circumstances, when they're constantly in pain, and yet they, whether emotionally or physically, are overcoming that and yeah. not blinding their eyes to, oh, right. yeah, I could, it could be tomorrow 
or it could be in 20 years, or it could be long beyond what I can imagine. We still watch these people just embrace all of the good. And you can't help but feel excited and filled with love for life. I love that you, the very first thing that you said, you talked about the celebration of life. I would love to talk more about that. I I think that is such a beautiful thought that maybe those of us who aren't given a really hard look at our own mortality miss that. We miss the celebration and we get lost in the monotony and the mundane and the repetitiveness and the sickness and the dreary gray winter weather and all the things that we miss the absolute sacredness and celebration of life. And I had a friend who lost her husband to throat cancer and they had they had five sweet little babies and she ended up marrying someone that she dated in college who never got married, remarried him. Or she was remarried after her husband died and he had never been married. And he took on these sweet five babies and they had one together as well knowing full well the the exact same thing that you said about your friend that he would be mm-hmm. her help me in this life and not knowing what eternity held and she said we've had the most sacred experiences feeling like her husband brought them together that they met they had a connection they went on missions she married someone else he never married and then came back to her and now they're raising these six children, five from her first husband and one together from them, not knowing what will happen in eternity. But, oh man, don't you just think that it makes me emotional thinking about it, that kind of Christ-like kindness. Oh, they exactly were Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what it feels like is, oh, there is no, nothing I can think of that is more I love the, the Christ-like kindness. That is exactly the right, you know, and these people they're meeting, what, yes. you know, we think, oh, these men are amazing, but who they marry and what a gift they must have found in those people and how yes. how much joy and love they have for them to be wanting to say, I would rather be with you now to have these years and build this. I have no question there'll be this wonderful eternal friendship, right? Right. Absolutely. (laughs) And let the Lord worry about the ceiling later. But what kind of, of amazing person they felt like they were meeting to, to say, I'm willing to, to do this. Yes. And that's that I think is a complete honor in itself. Oh, I agree. And and the and the woman that he married, I mean, to be able to carry her husband's grief and her children's grief as well as manage her own and not lose the faith. I mean, she is now I sometimes think that only those who have experienced the darkest, most trying times are able to then experience the lightest, most amazing, beautiful light that you, Mm -hmm. yes, like the Savior, like the depths of Gethsemane to like ultimate joy. And the people that have been through 
things I can't even comprehend are sometimes some of the most happy and not wild happy, but there's like an inner contented trust and peace and just a completely different outlook on life that they just think, I know things are going to work out and be okay. And I'm completely content in my trust and faith in the Savior and how things are right now. And she really is incredible. So he does feel like it is an honor to be her husband as much as she feels gratitude for having a man like him be her husband. So I'm so grateful that you shared that story because it, it, it is truly beautiful to witness as, as her friend, their relationship and how these children have thrived with a father with this wonderful man in their lives. Cause some were really, really young when their dad passed away. And it really is. It's like, wow, there must be, there must be a really good God in heaven because how could you not, how could you not believe in that after seeing, witnessing something like that come together so harmoniously that you think, how is he going to pick up the pieces from this? And he's like, okay, I've already put in place all these things. I've already set it in motion. So that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. And hats off to, to your friends as well. It sounds like they are just as amazing. They are incredible. So I'd love to talk with you a little bit about how you got into the mental health care profession. I'm sure you've seen, I mean, it, your bio talks about everything from mental health to, to drug addictions, death and, and cancer and, and, and those kinds of things. But, so I'm, I've actually, I, I read some books recently. One was called Empire Pain. And then I'm raising, reading one called Raising Lazarus right now about the opioid. I don't know if you call it an epidemic, a pandemic. What's the right terminology here? <laughs> Either one. It depends on the year you're speaking. So you can be right any way you go. <laughs> okay. Well, and how just rampant that is. And I'm sure that you have seen so much of that in your profession. And I applaud you for doing the really hard, incredible work of saving these souls that are wonderful, good people that have fallen to this addiction and how to help people recover from this. And I've seen it personally in my own life and it is a beast. And I would love to talk with you. First of all, how how did you get involved in this? Is this something you've always been interested in or was it something that you had witnessed in your own life that you thought, maybe I can do something about this. Maybe I can help in some way. This was that specific chapter of my life. I got into social work, actually. I love talking to people and listening to people. And we had one of our community or our, our church leaders come and approach us one day. And my husband was leading a congregation at the time. And he had asked, he was in, in the state presidency and asked if he could stop by. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. Come on over thinking, hey, I'm a young mom with all these kids. And I know you want to talk to my husband. So I'll support whatever you want to have him do. And his name was Bud Burlett. And just a kind guy. Everybody liked him. He was just a very, he was a, a brilliant mind and and just one of these wonderful, kind men. And he came and sat and he said, I just feel so inspired. He said, I wish I could make it a calling because I think you'd take it more seriously, but you need to go back to school because I had, oh. I dodged school like you would dodge a fire. I, I can't read well. My comprehension was zero and I had spent my life 
trying to live in a world where I wanted to show that I wasn't stupid. Right. But I, no one knew. I didn't, I, I didn't share with anybody that I couldn't read. I learned wow. all kinds of ways to get information and I became a pro at it. And he saw something and said, you need to go to school. And we kind of got through that. And after he left, I'm looking at my husband going, okay, Bud was way off. First of all, that's not appropriate because I got real defensive. Right. I'm not doing this. How dare somebody say I need to go back to school? Right. And my husband, I had used a screen, I guess would be a good word for it, in the world to just say I hated reading. Because it's okay to hate reading. Sure. Nobody judges you for that, right? Right. So that was kind of the mask I used so people understood I I hated it. And I it wasn't that I couldn't. I just hated it. And my husband said, well, let's go ahead and just have you take a couple of classes at CLC, which was a community college. And he goes, you know, just let's see what happens. And I'm like, and I started... And I'm very OCD. I have to get everything perfect or I don't want to do it. And so I started memorizing all the information I could. And he would read me all of my text. Wow. So I would just listen. And he would go through and whatever was handed out or outlines, he would just go through and he'd teach it to me and we'd make up goofy, you know, whatever. So I could yeah. memorize it. Yeah. And I did just fine. And after I got my two-year associates, he goes, well, let's just try the next step. I mean, Aww. you're doing great. And I'm like, no, I did what I was at. And he goes, well, you need to keep going. Yeah. And he was just amazing. My Jeff is absolutely my best friend for, for everything. But he, he transitioned me to my down in Chicago. And before I knew it, it was my bachelor's. And then it was, well, let's get the master's. And then, oh my goodness. So my kids were in, in school at this time. And, and I had friends who said, just give me your text. I'll read them into a recorder and you can listen to it as you go back and forth because we lived up in Lake Bluff area in a, in a small community called Knollwood. And it was about an hour and a half transition or transition drive back and forth into the city. And so I had a lot of time to just listen. And auditorially, I'm fine. If yeah. you talk to me, I understand ever, absolutely. Yeah, but I I just couldn't read it, or I had to just memorize books and hope that nobody changed words because I had memorized sure. certain things. That I so we we got into it, and and before I knew it, I had my master's, and that was I graduated with my master's just the same year that m my brother's wife and daughter were diagnosed here. And that's when we moved here. And so I got into different, I had no connections in Indianapolis. So I started at a juvenile detention center. <laughs> I mean, wow. I, it was the lowest of the lowest, you know, level you could start into yeah. anything. And I started as, as an assistant teacher. That's the only thing I could find that would hire me because I just had no network here. And worked for a few years. And one of our dear friends worked for the governor. And he said, hey, you've got this degree. We need somebody to help with the... And I think at that time, I may have been doing 
the addictions recovery. I think that was our very first mission that my husband and I did is we did an 18 month service mission with, with addiction recovery. Oh, wow. And so he said, you're doing this. This is kind of what I need. And so I went in and, and they gave me the job and I was thrown into it by, oh, this is a step up. It's a better job than I have. Yeah. You know, at that point, if I haven't got all my, you know, you look back over 25 years and you don't know what happened when, but I think at that point, Jeff had his diagnosis and he may have been going through some of his treatments without insurance and it had insurance and it was just the perfect answer. And so I jumped into that world and we had already fallen in love with the, the dynamic that goes with supporting people through that addiction wow. of substances. And you you see their struggle. And, yeah. you know, you had been extremely kind in your wording, as you said, you know, help, help these people or save these people. There is not a person out there who has an, a substance abuse challenge that doesn't do all that work themselves. If you have the honor and the privilege of holding their hand while they go through it. Every bit of that work, talk about doing good because it's a constant. It is, it is so much ingrained in them that it is a fight 24-7. I don't think I've ever had a 24-7 fight. I go to sleep and I don't fight anything. I'm in happy dreamland. But often they wake up with these horrible cravings and they don't get a break ever from that fight and what an and i mean this very sincerely an honor and privilege it is to watch somebody go through that kind of a fight and and very often like the rest of us when we're in the middle of a fight we yeah. we right blow it. You know, I can't even tell you how many times I've tried to diet. And I see that warm chocolate chip cookie and I'm like, yeah, next week. Next yeah. Week. Yep. <laughs> yep. But you, you watch them and you just think you keep trying no matter how right. many times, you know, and I know people get frustrated. Oh my land, they're going into rehab for the 900th time. Holy crud, guys. That means 900 times they're picking themselves up and trying again. Yep. Yep. And we don't, unless I've missed it, there is no, this is many times there you get to break before we don't get to seek forgiveness from the Lord. I don't, I haven't ever found that number. Nope. And so as you watch them, and if you think we're disappointed, imagine the disappointment in themselves and For knowing sure. I've messed up. I haven't hit what they needed me to hit. And I've, I've screwed it all up again. Yep. And so you watch and you, I just really kind of was created within my heart. And I hope it was through the spirit that I learned to have such a compassion and an admiration for people who just kept trying to get up and to watch them over and over and if there's anything we can do that helps them realize, hey, if if I had somebody counting every time I messed up a diet, right, or 
ate something I knew that wasn't super healthy for my body because it looked good at that very second. Right. Or yelled at my children. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or yelled at my children when I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. People would absolutely think I was a lost cause. Yeah. And so you start to see what it takes and that it isn't about the fact they don't love. It isn't about the fact that you're not important enough for them to quit. It's about a constant, oh, I don't know if this is the correct word, and I apologize if this is offensive to anybody, but it's almost like a demonic voice inside the head. Yes. That they don't get to escape. No, I, I think that's a cur- I I actually think that's a, a good way of describing it because it is, it's addiction is a demon and mm-hmm. there's no other way to describe it. It can be possessive. And my dad's a psychiatrist. And so I had the privilege of growing up with someone that was very open about mental health and addiction and and suicide and, and depression and all th- those things. And we had open conversations all the time. My dad would come home from work and talk to us about, you know, the importance of talking about our feelings and and what we were going through and and should we come across something that that we were addicted, you know, to whether that be pornography or drugs, how to approach him and 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 to talk to him and that there would never be shame or judgment that that the only shame would be the ones we put on ourselves that our parents would never be ashamed of us for being immortal, living this life and being susceptible to all those temptations that are there. And I feel very privileged that I, whenever we would come to our parents with something we were struggling with or working on, it was never like, really? How could you do that? It was, Mm -hmm. okay, thank you for telling us. It was always a thank you for telling us because addiction hides in darkness and in in isolation and uh, bringing it out into the light when you shine that that light on it even though it's really hard to t- to make that first conversation to talk to someone it, it loses a little bit of that grip and that power yeah and so so my dad it's same thing I, I i you remind me so much of him in the way that you talk and and your outlook on life he's one of the most positive happy people like he He's in the hospital, so he sees the really difficult, yeah. sad, heartbreaking cases. And he comes home, and he's just happy and joking. And it's almost like he he sheds that, and then can can be. And I and I again, I wonder if it's because he can see that opposite side that he's able to be like, wow. Then I'm just gonna embrace and celebrate life as much as I can because I know that there is that darkness and difficulty out there that that he has to help people wade through. And I I want to point on some touch on something you said that I think is important. You said that it is up to the person to to be able to recover and to be able to choose to overcome that demon and it really is. So what would you say to someone out there that is maybe struggling or watching a loved one struggle through addiction of of any kind? How how can they hold on to that hope that there will be that 1,000th time that it will take and they'll be able to then run with it and not give up hope after, you know, 999 say, okay, well then we're lost causes or they're a lost cause. How do you hold on to that hope that it can be done? And have you seen that personally? Absolutely. I have seen it over and over. And I've also seen those who were released from that fight on earth so that they could go and have a higher level of support and help on the other side. 
that's what I believe. I, I don't think, I know I've heard a zillion times, you know, oh, whatever you have on this earth, you're going to go over with and that's going to be, you know, your challenge. And I'm not saying that's not, I'm, I'm not negating that doctrine, but I choose to believe that you have legions of visible angels around you when you're there. And whatever support you have on this side, you can have on there. And some people, I want to be very honest about it, some people won't be able to overcome that challenge here on earth. And for those who are encompassed about by substance abuse on the other side, whether it's a child or a parent, create a healthy boundary so that it doesn't tear you apart. If if you stay in the boundaries where you're constantly getting ripped down, you'll never be in a position to help the people who are hurting. Mm-hmm. So create a healthy boundary for yourself and figure out what you need so that you can stand on a firm foundation. Yes. And then identify how much support you can give and keep the understanding of what is healthy for you. I I think sometimes we we decide that if I'm a really good person, I can step in the middle of this and not be affected. Right. And there's a limit to all of us. You're right. We're mortal. Yes. We don't have the infinite strength. We have, we have to create a healthy boundary. Yes. And you figure out what that is. And then I believe in a huge power of prayer. Yes. You pray for them and you pray for yourself to be able to have Sometimes you start with the desire. Give me the desire to have the compassion I need. Yes. Once you gain that compassion, then you pray for their safety. You pray for all the good you can think of to come their way. And you connect them when they're ready and they're willing with all the resources possible. There are so many resources out there. Yes. But sometimes they're not ready for them. And, you know, I loved at general conference the the last general conference they talked about be patient with those who are not choosing to embrace mm-hmm. the gospel at this time just like you want them to be patient with you if you are staying in the middle of living the gospel and i think agency is critical if somebody mm-hmm. has asked for space the kindest thing we can do is give them space Mm-hmm. If somebody says, I'm not ready to move forward with healing, I'm still in the middle of this addiction, then you love them from wherever is safe for you to love them. And you constantly use the power of prayer to create a Christ-like compassion, empathy, and petitioning for them. But there are people who are not ready to let go. Mm-hmm. And we have to respect others' choices, even 
when we realize that those choices could be putting them in the very worst physical harm a person could be in. Right. Right. If we force and say, you have to do it this way, then we step out of the supportive agency. Right. We can only judge for ourselves what is healthy for us. And we have to honor and respect where others are. And that's that's super hard. Yes. Because you have to actually then say, if they drink themselves to death, that's their choice. And I can't stop somebody who's going to choose to do that. I know. And that's especially hard, I think, now that I'm a parent, is that there are certain things I can you know, enforce on my boys rules and such. And, and this is just the way it is. But the hardest thing I've learned as a mother is letting them make mistakes and realizing I can't force you. There are some things you just, you literally cannot force. There's some things you can and, and some things you can't. And, and the things that you can, if you are forcing it usually doesn't stick anyway. And then it's just, and then it's just, hurting your relationship. And I think what you said was was so beautifully said, especially with being Heavenly Father to help. And I wonder if we if we really think about the phrase casting our burden upon the Lord, mm-hmm. if we think of that as a literal thing we can actually do. And that he actually, I don't know how it's done through the beautiful power of his atonement, can lift our burden and their burden. Like it's a literal thing when it says, give it to me. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it doesn't mean that you're giving up. It's just giving it to him mm-hmm. saying, please help me carry this. Cause I don't know how, and mm-hmm. I, uh, this person's making decisions that I don't agree with and I don't know what to do. So I'm going to give it to you. And then he'll, he'll say, okay, I know how to help them and I know how to carry it. And he can help them. And you know, I I think what you said was so important too, that sometimes our our friends and family and, and our loved ones, they have to face this from the other side of the veil. And I agree with you 100% that we do not even understand God's love for us and for our loved ones. And I don't believe for a second that he withholds that. I think there are legions of angels on this side and the other side of the veil. I love that you say, say that. Because how heartbreaking would it be for a mother to think that my son or child was in the darkest place and now they're even worse off because of, I don't agree with that either. And of course, there's loving judgment and Heavenly Father knows how to help us and He'll be able to work with us where we are. But I I just want to reaffirm what you said that I think that there's no way that he would stop that help, that there is help on the other side. And if they were that sick, that it happened, that they lost their lives. My mom's own father, my grandfather died of alcoholism. And there've been some beautiful sacred experiences that, that she's had and my grandmas have that make them think he's been able to now that and now be a guardian angel to us and help us in this life. So I just think heavenly father loves, loves us and is able to help us more than our mortal minds can comprehend. So thank you for stating that. That's important to me, and I'm grateful for you for saying that. Absolutely, my pleasure. I I create, and I have ever since I was a little, little girl, I create pictures in my mind. And 
sometimes I find that my clients or patients, this is helpful for them. Yeah. But as I step back, when I realize that maybe I'm not helping somebody, yeah. I'm causing more pain or I that guilt is worse. Yeah. And as I step back, I have this picture <laughs> and I <laughs> right in front of me as a, a picture of the Savior. I I see in my mind's eye, I'm not the person that's helping this person right now. But here, you have this amazing love and this amazing process of forgiveness and you have all power and you're so much stronger to be able to walk through this pain and darkness with them. And I can't wait to give them to you. Right. Because you're going to allow all of the things that I'd want to run in and say, no, stop that. That's not kind or that's not good or this right. isn't going to be helpful. Or what happens if it's not just you? What happens if you get in an accident and somebody else is hurt and they're innocent? And what? how do we right. do that? But if I hand you over to the Lord and he allows whatever is going to happen to happen. Yes. And he's going to say to you every time, I've already paid for this. Right. I've already paid for this. You can lift your arm up and my arm is outstretched at all times. Yes. And no matter what you do, my arm is still outstretched and I will carry you as long as you will allow me. And when you come home, I will continue to carry you and I will continue to give you all of the love that Father and I have for you. And yes. that would be so much more yes. than Marcia or John or Susan or anybody else can give you. Right. Because I have a complete, whole, and perfect love. Yes. And they, bless their little hearts, they're just mortal. Yes. And they may say something wrong once or they may you know, go to do something that's completely offensive. And so when I find that my boundaries cause me to step back, that's the picture I create in my mind is literally taking whoever it is, whether it's a, a patient or a client or a family member or a friend, and laying them in the Savior's arms. Oh, that is a beautiful picture. I love that thought so much. And I had I had a thought come to my mind when you were when you were saying that. I have recently been reading the volumes of saints. So the LDS Church, you in the church history, right in the Gospel Library app, you can read these incredible books about our church history. And something stood out to me so poignantly when a, a few months ago when I was reading it. And it was, of course, about the very famous scripture when Joseph Smith is asking the Lord. In DNC 121, like, where art thou? Where's the pavilion that covered thy hiding place? And why are you letting us suffer? And how long are you going to do this? And kind of like, oh, what? Are, how much more can you ask of us? You know, he's like, what is going? Where are you? And 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 you understand? I mean, this is after all these massacres of the saints, and Joseph Smith is in jail, and people are suffering and sick. So of course, it you know it says you know the Lord told Joseph, know thee thou my son. All these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. But then there's this extra little insight in saints that 
everything I've read in Saints, it is actually from a source. It's not anything that there's nothing in the books that is not completely historically accurate. So it was, it had to be documented multiple times. It had to be backed up. It had to be, if it said it was a cold, rainy day in April, it was actually a cold and rainy day in April. So there's this extra insight in, in Joseph Smith's journals and it, that isn't included in the Doctrine and Covenants that clarifies and, and just adds upon what the Savior meant by this. And I think it's, it's, it meant, it changed my whole perspective on Heavenly Father sitting with us in our trials and our grief and, and being in His arms and Him allowing things to happen. It said, the Savior reminded Joseph that the saints could not suffer more than He had. He loved them and could end their pain, but He chose instead to suffer afflictions with them, carrying their grief and sorrow as part of His atoning sacrifice. Such suffering filled Him with mercy, giving Him power to succor and refine all who turn to Him in their trials. So the thought of, instead of thinking, you know, well, I don't understand why Heavenly Father doesn't just take this addiction away. Why? Because He can. We know He can. He can take anything away. He can raise the dead. He can He can take away any sin, any trial, any addiction. Your cancer. <laughs> Your cancer. Yep. And 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 you think, well, my, my sweet son passed away, but my husband, who had six months to live, Live for 20 years. Why? We know he could have healed my son. Like he healed my husband and I don't understand. And it said he chose instead to suffer them with them. And I feel like instead of just imagining Gethsemane as a one-time thing, like I felt it all and now I can help you. I wonder if instead, this is just doctrine according to Carmen. This is just what I think. It instead possibly... I don't know if this is the right terminology, but open the portal for him to be able to suffer with us in real time as we're going through it. So it wasn't as I used to think of it as, oh, he already felt it. So now he can help me. Instead, he's feeling it with me now. And that changed everything about the way I viewed the Savior and how he helps me in my trials, that he instead was with your son as he was going through it and with your husband and with those people suffering addiction in real time, choosing instead to suffer them with him because it said it filled him with mercy and gave him power to succor and refine us all. So it actually is, it's for our benefit. And then instead of going through it alone, he's there with us. And that has changed my whole perspective on, it doesn't, necessarily make it easier, but gives me a little more peace when I'm sitting there wondering why watching my loved ones suffer or going through trials myself. No, I love that. And I think it is validated as you think back to the story of him weeping. Yes. With, with you know, I, I know in a minute I'm going to raise your child. But I'm going to yes. be first because I'm going to feel what you're feeling while you feel it. And so I think that is a wonderful way to connect what your vision is with what we know scripturally. Right. And it, anyway, I, I, I just think, I don't know. I, there's so, there's so much we don't know and so much we don't understand. And 
I, I hope that in talking today, you know, the people that are actually going through this, and you know this better than me, that we haven't had, that you don't feel like we're, well, just say a prayer and it'll be okay, or turn to the Savior, because we know that sometimes this is years or a lifetime worth of Absolutely. trials and, and suffering. But I would love, as we wrap this up, Marsha, for you to maybe, could you tell people, like, you say there's so many resources, where how do people go about finding those? Where are some places people can go or turn to hotlines or in their own states if they aren't wanting to either go for some place for themselves or look into something for their loved ones? Or I had a friend that she said, I did this 12-step program along with my husband, not being having an addiction, but being able to release my feelings of anger towards him, being able to recover myself and realize that Oh, your choices, I think what you said was so important, are not because of me and don't affect me. And it's not because I'm a bad wife and I'm doing something wrong and release herself from carrying all that burning guilt. So so if, if you could point maybe our listeners to some of those resources or possibly on your own Instagram page or Facebook page or resources that you have as well, I think that would be so helpful and beneficial to our listeners today. I think because I I am not in the same state you are and, and there are so many different resources I actually would encourage people to go online okay. and put things in. I am a huge advocate. President Hinckley said when he saw the Addictions Recovery Program that every person needed to go through this. Wow. The 12th, and, the church's 12th exactly, program. Yeah. Okay. And I changed it when we were doing it. I was talking to one of our leaders and they said, hey, I've changed the name on this a little bit. And they're like, Sister French. And I'm like, wait, just let me talk to you for two seconds and tell you what I've changed it to. Yes. And they said, this is inspired. We don't change things. You teach it just as it is. And I said, but it wouldn't make more sense for people if we called it still the Addictions Recovery Program, but it is all about implementing the 12 Steps of the Atonement. And he looked at me and said, well, of course it is. And I said, okay, but I don't hear that. When I, yeah. when I hear addictions recovery, I think, oh, that's for people who are struggling with pornography or drugs right. or alcohol or food addictions. Or I, I think of in an addiction, guys, P.S., it just means given to a strong habit. Yes. I eat Little Debbie's, <laughs> you yeah. know, that cakes, right? And so it we have this black cloud over the word addiction and every single one of us on this earth is overcoming and learning and growing and gaining experience. So whether I'm the one with the addiction or I'm the one trying to learn forgiveness and compassion yes, when I'm being hurt over and over and over again, and I haven't quite identified a healthy boundary. Yeah. I need that 12 step for me just as much because when I go through that first step of saying, well, it's not that bad, whether you're the one with the identified quote unquote addiction, or you're the one who's trying to get that person with the addiction into recovery. Yeah. I've said those same words. Well, I guess it's not that bad. Oh, they're doing better today. Right. Or whatever. And it's it's not about that. It's about recognizing that there is a Savior. Yes. And He is Jesus Christ. 
and the atonement is real. Yes. It's not something sweet we talk about. And it is a living dynamic thing. It is going to take care of things that don't happen for another 10 years, as well as things that happened hundreds and thousands of years ago. Yes. And so we recognize, oh, I need it to be more compassionate. I need it to be more forgiving. I need it to try and understand what others are going through and and remove my judgmental attitudes because maybe I don't struggle with tobacco, but I do with a temper or I do with judging others or I do with fill in the blank. So I am a huge advocate of this program. I love this program. And when I start to struggle, I pull that 12-step book out and I force myself to go through and look at, oh, what is the blemish or the the beam that's in my eye that I need to remove right now? And anytime I'm feeling any kind of conflict or contention, I love Joseph Smith at one point. And, and of course, I'm not. When you said, oh, go and read the, you know, the saint stuff, it's, it's so great. It is. But for all of you out there who also may be dyslexic, or don't have huge comprehension, you can pop that on your phone and listen to it. It's awesome. (laughs) So you've got that too. But go back. And a woman came to Joseph Smith at one point who had had people say things about her that weren't necessarily true. They were hurtful. They were harmful. And she went to get comfort. And his response to her, and I'm paraphrasing, so please understand that I will give you the true story, but not the true words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something that whenever I feel, and certainly if anybody had reason to feel like people were out to get him for not good reasons, Joseph Smith was one of the top of the, you know, 10% who's ever walked on the earth. And he said, I stop and think about what have I done that could have led them to that belief? And I think about that often, and I think, was there something I said? Yeah. Something I did that created that, and it becomes more of a a repentance process. Yeah. What small thing can I change about me to help me become better? Because, wow, you know, she may have this problem, but, oh, hun, look at your series of volumes with what you've got wrong with you. And I'm meaning me, not another person. Right. And so we start to look at, and and as I go back to your original question, what are the resources? I think one of the best resources that I have used in the last two decades is the addictions recovery. And not necessarily for a world-defined abuse, but for self giving to a strong habit that wouldn't be unified with my Redeemer. What is it that I can shift and I can change? And when it comes to, because there's so many, so many challenges and things that we need support and help with, go on and be specific. Say, ah, alcohol addiction. What are my community resources to help me begin recovery? 
or methadone or, or, or I'm sorry, or whatever. Yes. Be specific. Open your doors. Understand that other faiths have wonderful support systems too. Right. If you can address it daily, maybe two or three or seven things a week, that's going to strengthen your resolve to change and to gain strength. So for community, look at that. But for overall, understand that everything is probably going to be grounded in the Savior's Atonement and a really great resource. Just every building, I'm guessing, you go yeah. into, any LDS building will have an addictions recovery booklet. You can get it right online if you go into the church's website. You don't need to be LDS. You don't need to pay anything. It is a free resource for everyone. And start doing some personal evaluation and recognize that as we've talked a lot about the Savior having compassion for all these people, yeah, that you too are his son or his daughter, and he will have compassion for you that you cannot comprehend, and he is your greatest cheerleader and will walk through this every step of the way with you. Oh, that is such a beautiful advice. Thank you so much. And and for emphasizing the Savior especially. And I agree there there are wonderful things we can do and Heavenly Father will point us to the right resources, but a great reminder to not forget that the biggest resource of all is is pointing upward to our Savior Jesus Christ, that He can help us in so many incredible ways and and ways we can't even comprehend. I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk with us today, Marsha, on your son's angel anniversary. And I hope that you eat all of those little Debbies and, <laughs> and take all those amazing pictures and, and remember how wonderful and incredible he was. And that there, I'm sure there are those listening to this podcast today that were strengthened by your your light and your positivity and for all the good that you are doing. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Go for it. It's yes. a great day. Go do some good and be happy. <laughs> do it. Let's all do some good. Thank you, Marsha. Carmen Herbert, and I'm so excited to tell you about an amazing app that my whole family loves. It's called Our Turtle House, and it's full of literally thousands of hours of full-length talks, just like the old talk on CDs or talk on tapes, from some of your favorite Latter-day Saint speakers like John By the Way, Mick Johnson, Hank Smith, me, and a ton more. Plus, there's podcasts, firesides, devotionals, come follow me resources, and entertaining content your whole whole family will enjoy truly all in one little app and you can use promo code doing good all one word at checkout and you get a full month free so check it out and sign up at ourturtlehouse.com see you soon